Acts 1, verses 12 through 14. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Well, good evening. Nice to see you. This is very encouraging. We've got about twice as many people this week as we had last week. Let's hope that progression continues. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that we can be together and we can worship you. And you can speak into our lives. You can change us. You can empower us. You can give us vision of what you want to do. Well, tonight we pray you'd have your way and do whatever you want. Please take what I've prepared and make it useful for your service and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who are joining us for the first time in these evening service, and this is only the second one that we've had for really quite a while, and those who are watching online, uh, let me just say a little bit by way of introduction. Uh, one, one of the advantages of sort of starting off afresh, because it is a fresh start, having not had an evening service for many, many, many months, is we're able to have an element of flexibility. And quite deliberately, what we do from week to week is not cast in stone. And it does depend, to some extent, uh, how many people turn up, because uh, the larger the number, then uh, it will have sway on what it's possible to do and what it's not possible to do. Always say there'll be time for worship, always there'll be preaching from God's word, and always there'll be response time to what the Holy Spirit is doing and saying. Now, we're journeying through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is Luke's second uh, part of the scriptures. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. That's not really a surprise. But he continues it with the history of how the ministry of the church continues in the book of Acts. And it is the story, it is the development of God's people. It tells us, really. So how did the disciples get on after Jesus had commissioned them and after he'd left them? Well, the fact we're meeting here over 2,000 years later tells us they couldn't have been complete duds, could they? It tells us something rather, rather good. But it's to this book that we turn, the book of Acts, when we want hints as to what we could expect as we too try and follow Christ. And if you and I were to pick up the book of Acts for the very first time and you were just to read it with 
no background, no prejudice, nothing. Just try and say, well, what's it telling me? What's it showing me? I think one or two things would just leap out of a page at you. Number one, it's a pretty bumpy ride. It's not predictable what will happen. Sometimes everything seems to be going well, and there are great leaps forward, multiples of people, thousands of people, becoming followers of Christ all at the same time. And then there are passages in the book of Acts which are not a bit like that. Struggle, struggle, struggle. Persecution. Being disseminated, having to scatter because the church is, is suffering so much. Periods of pain and hands-on suffering. There are heroes and there are villains. And sometimes characters are somewhere in between. Sometimes persecution comes from when you expect it. Sometimes it comes from where you least expect it. Well, all of this comes home to us as we let this book get under our skin and as we get under the skin of this book. And last week, we just highlighted one or two things from the very beginning of the book of Acts. And obviously, I'm not going to repeat the whole of last week's talk. But we noticed that the disciples had conviction. They were convinced that Jesus was still alive. We noticed that they had a commission, that they were sent into all the world to make disciples, and we'll return to this tonight. And we noticed, too, that they had help from the Holy Spirit, and we noticed that they were told to wait. Before they went anywhere, they were told to wait for the Lord. Well, tonight we're going to stop by just two verses and they were in the passage that Rachel read and she could almost cut it down to one verse verse 14 where having had a list of the people that were present we're told they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers and I just want to focus on that that very near the beginning of this chronicle of Acts, we're being told that they prayed. And I want to talk about prayer meeting with a heart and the heart of a prayer meeting. But my simple first heading is, is this thing, that they prayed together. Now, I don't suppose that's a surprise to many of you. And uh, if you've been a churchgoer for any length of time at all, if you've been a follower of Christ for any length of time at all, th then you sort of know that prayer is meant to be wrapped into the whole deal of being a follower of Christ. You know, it's, it would have been a surprise in the, in the book of Acts if we read and they gathered together Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, and they went off to McDonald's. You know, that would have got your attention. But you know, you kind of know it comes with the rations. Of course, they prayed. But here's the thing. If I said, we've got a prayer meeting tomorrow night, I suspect that in reality, quite a few of us, our hearts will go gloomy. Just being honest. And you think, oh no. 
Now, not everyone, and they're not everyone, I know. I know some of you are saying, no, Rupert, we're not a bit like that. But I felt like that often enough. I felt, oh, I've got to go because I'm the vicar. <laughs> and people have been there and they've felt, oh, I've got to go because if I don't go, they'll think I'm unspiritual. And sometimes looking back, I'm just being honest, so, you know, don't kill me yet. Uh, sometimes I look back and, and some of the prayer meetings I've been to have been the most exciting, wonderful meetings I've ever been to. So I make that clear. But some have also been the most boring. And, um, and if, if you could have uh, read my mind, you'd have been knowing that I was thinking about everything else apart from the prayer meeting I was at. Now, so all I want to talk about tonight is what's the difference? What makes for a, a prayer meeting you want to be at and you can participate in meaningfully and what makes for a dud? And, and I've, I've noticed that many of us, and I say us because it's certainly true for, for me, m- many of us have nothing in our heritage that teaches us to pray. Now, you may be lucky, you may be fortunate, you may be blessed that you have written to your heritage, your sort of spiritual DNA, your family DNA, is a heritage of prayer. That might be your experience. But for many of us, it isn't. And um, so I'm always very struck when I meet people for whom prayer has actually become an essential part of their life. And I've noticed that there's a very simple correlation, actually, that very often people who have been engaged in full-time Christian mission work abroad, where they've had really no resources at all, have really made prayer an essential, vibrant part of their life. So when I became vicar of a, a church in Salisbury when I was about 32, I got summoned by an elderly lady in her 90s who lived in an almshouse just across from where I lived, and um, when I appeared in her little room that she lived in, she, she said, now, young man, um, how can I pray for you? With a very piercing and very kind face. And she said, um, I, I worked in what we now call Israel, but it was before the creation of Israel. I, I worked abroad for many, many, many years. Uh, I had no resources, whatever. I've learned to rely on God in prayer. And I have prayed for the previous three rectors of this church, and I'm going to pray for you. She's almost said it like a threat, but um, how can I pray for you? And there was something about the integrity of this lady that I, I just knew I was in the presence, in the company of someone who really knew how to engage with God. And it was exciting. It was a good feeling. I think back to the first vicar that I met, actually, when I became a Christian at age 20, I worshipped in this little local church in the middle of nowhere on Dartmoor. And there was this little local uh, vicar, very unimpressive outwardly. Then there was a little local congregation, very, very tiny. And um, knowing nothing about anything, uh, everything I, I encountered was new and fresh. So I was learning, 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 lapping it up. And... Um, the vicar, a chap called Gibson, he, he came out in a conversation that he met with three other Christians 
on a regular basis to pray. And um, they would share their prayer needs and the prayer needs of their friends, and they would talk about it together. And he said, and then if we agree something, we, we agree it in prayer, and it happens. I thought, that is... That, well, it's remarkable. I won't say it's odd, but it's remarkable. And I noticed that whenever we prayed, there was a sense of doing business with God. It wasn't just a waste of time or mouthing off in the air. There was a sense of the Lord is here. And I remember at some point explaining to him, um, Gibson, I would love you to pray because since I've become a Christian, I feel that the relationship with my parents, who are in London, and this was down in Exeter, um, is in danger of fragmenting. I, I haven't actually been able to talk to them for quite a long time. And um, I, I think you know, they, there's a barrier going up, and, I, and it's worrying me, and I would like us to pray, or like you to pray, actually. And um, we prayed. 20-year-old Rupert, probably 64-year-old Gibson, I don't know how old he was. And I cannot explain to you to this day why it was the case. But as I drove home, my home down there on the edge of Dartmoor, I just knew that my parents were going to ring. I don't know how I knew, but I just knew. And um, literally, as I walked in the front door, the phone rang. And I don't think my father um, picked this up, but I, <laughs> I know that I said, hello, daddy, before he'd even said a word. And um, it was an answer to prayer. I found it enormously encouraging. So prayer can be, can be um, absolutely wonderful, um, but it, 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 it can be very, very difficult. But it makes a difference. That's a point I want to make. Prayer made a difference. And as you read the book of Acts, you find it always makes a difference. You find that, for example, in Acts chapter 4, as they were praying, the place where they were praying was shaken and they were all filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You find in Acts chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, that as they were all together in one place, and one has to assume that it's the same group of people, uh, the Spirit fell. Now, let's dig down a bit. What is it that makes this meeting tick? And I want, I want to say, I acknowledge, just even as I, I begin this talk, it, it's far easier to learn about prayer by being at a prayer meeting than it is just by hearing information. You know, I, I quite like the story of... Um, well, it's obviously an apocryphal story, but, but the story of a bus driver who died and uh, went to heaven and uh, he met St. Peter at the pearly gates and he was shown straight through to the front of the queue to the annoyance of a vicar who died and arrived at the same time and was sent to join a very very long queue and the vicar said look that's simply not fair he, he just drove buses and, and I was a vicar and uh, St. Peter said yes that's true but while he was driving, the people in the bus prayed. While you were preaching, 
they slept. So there is a sense in which we, we learn about prayer when you're in a good prayer meeting, but nevertheless, we can, I hope, learn a little bit from the scripture. So here is the main and the plain point I want to make tonight. The huge thing that they had which sets this prayer meeting alive and any other prayer meeting that you and I go to makes a difference between it being something you can buy into and participate in or, or just kind of perfunctory is vision. Vision. In their mind's eye and in their heart, they already could see what they were hoping for in God's economy. They, they already had something that was uniting them, a sense of a preferred future, because God had given it to them. God had given it to them. And I think one can say, of course, of course, of course, having a prayer meeting is a good idea. Of course we ought to pray and not give up, because Jesus tells us that we ought to pray and not give up, which is interesting anyway, because he must have seen that there was a possibility we'd give, give up, or else he wouldn't have said that. But it, guilt, will, as I've explained, will never be a good motivator at a prayer meeting, but vision will. You, you know, suppose, well, we often pray, don't we? God, you know the secrets of our hearts. You ever prayed that prayer? You've heard it, heard it said. Isn't it lucky that God doesn't write on the wall of a prayer meeting what's going on in our hearts? You know, it, oh God, who knows the secrets of our hearts? You know I'd rather be at home right now, but I'm here because I'm guilty when I'm at home because I know I should be at the prayer meeting. Or suppose this prayer meeting had gone like this. Oh God, protect me from Simon the Zealot. You know I can't bear him. Well, it doesn't. They were united in vision. Why did this prayer meeting get off the ground? They'd all heard the Great Commission. That's part of the vision. Let me remind you what the Great Commission is. Jesus said to the disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey me. And I'm with you to the ends of the earth. Now, however you look at that, whatever translation you pick, however often you read it, that's massive. That is absolutely massive. Go into all the earth. That's a task. We're tasked. We're, we're told what we're about. But before you can make disciples of all nations, you've got to see people converted. They've got to actually be a follower. You can't be a learner of following Jesus until you are actually following Jesus. And the moment you think about that, it's a very curious deal. Now, don't get me wrong, I really am so grateful to be a follower of Jesus. I, I know him better now than when I did 40 years ago when I gave my life to him. I, I appreciate him more and more and more. I, as far as I'm concerned, following Christ you, is something you grow into, not grow out of. And uh, there are huge things that we could sit down and talk about, I, me to you, you to me, about why you enjoy following Christ, if you indeed are following him. And um, just off the top of my head, I think um, a lot of joys come my way through following Christ. Uh, 
I enjoy being able to sit still without fidgeting and to pray. Uh, I enjoy God's company as a friend. Uh, I appreciate the purpose that he's given to my life. Um, I think of a verse of, of a hymn that we sometimes sing, it's a bit dated, but it puts it so well, pardon for sin and a peace that endures, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine, 10,000 besides. And there's a whole dimension of life that those of us who follow Christ could willingly share and talk about, which, which we're thrilled by. I mean, it has to be an upside of following Christ or we wouldn't bother. But just to mention that side of the equation is only to mention half the story, isn't it? Because it's true to some extent that choosing to follow Christ is very like putting your hand up and volunteering to be ugly. Not in every sense, but in some ways it's peculiarly costly. Because anyone who is a disciple of Christ, Jesus didn't hide this, he said, you're going to pick up your cross and you're going to follow me. That is costly. It, it, it always leads to a change of direction. Always. That's what that old-fashioned word repent means. It means change your mind. Change how you're doing life. And that is going to take you and me against the flow. It's going to mean that the majority of people that you meet in life aren't going to agree with you. They're going to think you're slightly weird. They're going to think, I don't get it, their priorities, I just don't understand it. And it's going to show by the way that you invest your time, your energy, your money, your very self, what you pour yourself into is going to be anathema to so many other people. Not to mention how you do relationships or what you think is important in life. Now, why am I mentioning all this like that? Because as they sat in that room praying, they realized how small they were, how big the task was, how they just simply couldn't do it in their own strength. You know, just by pulling their socks up and trying a bit harder, you won't convert, convert anyone just through sheer brute force and ignorance, as it were. But they had this vision, they had this command, they had this impression, they had this conviction, we're going to see the world change because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Because this is essentially good news, it's God's news. Because God has said, I will build my church. Now, how's it going to happen? Well, look how pathetic we are. We, we haven't got a bank account to rub together. We're all pretty much no fixed address. We've just seen the person that we follow, we call the savior of the world, executed. So we had better pray. We had better pray. Can you catch what I'm talking about? When God gives you a picture of what he wants to do, but you know you haven't got the resources, you are driven into his presence by an urgency, by, by the fact that you just come clean with God. We need your help. And we're crying out for it. You know, it's not a sham, this. We, we really need it. And I, 
Allied to what I'm talking about is the second thing. Doubt this made this prayer meeting very real. Fear. Fear. It, it was not fun to be a follower of someone who's just been executed. To know that persecution awaits you. We're told, aren't we, in John's Gospel, that they, they locked the doors out of fear. And then, thirdly, powerlessness. Seems to me very clear in, in the Gospels that Jesus says to the disciples, they're to do the works of a king. The kingdom is to be experienced as well as talked about. And that's why the 70, just like the 12, when they're sent out, Jesus says to them, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. And you know, I'm, I'm always convicted when I read the scriptures carefully of the combination between doing and telling. Even at the beginning of a book of Acts, Luke told us in the reading from last week, that he recorded what Jesus began to do and to teach. And we're commanded, the disciples are commanded to show and tell the gospel. It's so interesting, they weren't told to know and tell the gospel, but to show and tell the gospel. And Paul writes in one of his letters that the kingdom of God is not about talk, but about power. And I'm always convicted when I read that because I think, no, it isn't. Often in my life, it's all about talk. Just a bit more talk. If I could sit you down and give you a bit more talk, maybe then you'll become a Christian. But what this is telling me and what I'm trying to share together is, and what made them pray, is they wanted to see the kingdom come. And friends, so do a lot of the people that you know. A lot of the people that you know. If they could be honest with you, they would share areas of their lives which have not worked out as they wanted. They would tell you parts of their life which they feel broken, or they would tell you about something that happened in their past that they've never been able to get over, or how their children haven't lived up to their expectation, or how they haven't lived up to their own expectation. And they would love God to do something about it. And I think Jesus would do something about it. it. It's part of the gospel. I think it's just something that seems to have happened in the way that we so often do life. We have turned the kingdom of God into more and more and more facts. And people seeking help from the Lord don't really need five more facts always. They need the presence of a Lord up close and personal. And that's really what we know the disciples prayed. We're not studying the prayer in Acts 4 tonight, but that is what they prayed when they were backed into a corner. Now, Lord, stretch out your hand and heal and do signs and wonders. And I think in, in this prayer meeting, they must have been praying the same sort of thing. It is, in fact, what God did. Should we be praying that? I think we should. I can't bring it on. I can't magic it up, nor can you. 
But we can lift our voice to the Lord and say, Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see people help. And we're powerless. We are powerless. A couple of other things that I think they prayed for because Jesus told them to pray for it. Workers. Have you ever clocked this verse? It comes both in Luke's gospel, Luke 10, verse 2, and Matthew's gospel. And I love it. The harvest is plentiful, says Jesus, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. And again, this is an idea that many people have actually reversed. Many people actually think the harvest is very small. Isn't that a problem? Jesus says, no, that's not the problem. The harvest potentially is huge, but you haven't got enough workers. You haven't got enough people who are engaged in the Lord's work. Now, I'm not talking about, that doesn't mean you've got to be a, a, a vicar or a pastor. We're all, we're all ministers for Jesus Christ. But it's saying, when you pray about your week that's coming up, when you think about the friends that you've got, when you think about the people you rub shoulders with, have, have you said, Lord, I'm prepared to stand out for you here with them? I'm even prepared to pray for them. I would love an opportunity if they were to sit down and tell me they're finding life difficult or this, that, and the other. I, I'd be prepared to say, Lord, or say to them, how about us praying about it? The harvest is plentiful, workers are few. They had a few other things going for them before I wind this talk up. Uh, it's very apparent. They were united. They were united. And also it's apparent that when you have a prayer meeting, it's not actually numbers that count. They're, they're very, very small. The people that are, are named in this, we're not told everyone's name because we're told along with the women, but probably maximum 20 people there. But they are praying up a storm. Now, as I bring this to a close, how do I think this relates to us at St. Michael's? Well, I think anyone who is a follower of Christ today understands what it's like to be backed into a corner. That just like this little group emerging up into their society, dominated by the Romans, uh, the culture is slipping away from our grasp at high speed. And, and we understand, we know, we feel it, that uh, to stand out for Christ is a dangerous game. We need God's help. We need boldness. I feel it relates to us at St. Michael's because this is God's place. It exists to please him. And while it's great to look at and see that I'm preaching to, I don't know how many people are here tonight, about 40, 50 maybe, but around about us, and we're not particularly a local church, that doesn't matter actually, we're a gathered church, that's fine, but around about you, wherever you go home tonight, there will be loads of people who haven't a clue about Jesus. Not a clue. They, they might have an opinion, but they probably haven't a clue what he did with his life. They, they couldn't tell you five things that he said. They might have turned their back on him 
without even knowing him. And he loves them. And he's got good news for them. And he's got good plans for them. And they could be part of his kingdom just like you and I are. So I think we need to be praying more and more and more. Lord, equip me, show me. Relight the fire that you've got a purpose for me in this life. And then, and he's not particularly in, in order of importance at all, I think it would be greatly to God's pleasure for this church to be absolutely rammed with people praising him. Absolutely. And it's not because numbers are that important. It's just we understand when the Holy Spirit impacts you that there is such a thing as a spiritual dimension to life. There is such a thing as spiritual battles and um, principalities and powers and that kind of thing. And when we are praising God, when we are lifting him up, when we are deliberately exalting him and magnifying him, making him big, and when we are making ourselves small and acknowledging that we are his creatures and he's our creator, we are doing what we were created for. And he deserves it. And he loves it. And it, it's fulfilling for him and for us. And I would love him to walk around this area and find, yes, there's another church on fire with people uh, who love me to bits. And I'm not in the least bit worried. I, I don't feel at all that we're in competition with any other church around up and down the country. Um, because there are more than enough unbelievers out there to fill every single church. And God wants, you know, God deserves our praise. And my, it would be exciting to see people turn to the Lord because they know he's got kindness for them. Sometimes, friends, people say, um, you ought to pray because prayer is what brings on revival. I don't actually think that. It is true that very often prayer come near the beginning of a revival, but I actually think they're empowered by the Holy Spirit and that's part of a revival itself. So you can't really beat yourself up. We can't beat ourselves up. I'm not trying to beat you up and do a guilt trip onto, um, you know, so pray more and you'll see more. But I am reminding us, when you get captivated by what God can do, you will start to pray. I will start to pray more. And, and I just um, figure that right now, coming out of lockdown, so many people, so many of us, have lost confidence in so many areas of life. Very, very simple things. And, and I think there's a, a huge cost being paid, which, which we hardly acknowledge. Um, and, and I wouldn't blame anyone if, if really you feel what you most want to do is hunker down and go into your shell. But that's not life to the full. And I, I hope and I pray, and I'd like it to be part of your vision, that we would see more and more people come out of their homes and turn off the internet and think, I actually need to connect with people again. I actually need to be in the company of people again. I actually need to get confidence that in reaching out, hospitality needs to start again. Friendships need to be grown and developed.
Because um, make no mistake about it, it's not the same thing at all, um, staying at home and, and worshipping privately. And I don't say that uh, to do a guilt trip on any of you watching at home, at least you're watching. Uh, but it'll be a better day when we're all back together. We need one another. And part of the vision I have, and I'm sure God will give it to you too, is we're the body of Christ together to support each other. 